everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today I'm very, very happy to be joined by John Peaster, who was pestered frequently by Lisa Wardle to come and do this podcast and has graciously allocated an hour of his time to share his stories. So, John, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. No, thank you. This has uh, been something I've been wanting to do since Lisa mentioned it to me, and uh, I'm glad we're doing it here today. I've gotten to listen to quite a few of them. I'm a little bit behind, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to all of them eventually because they've been a fantastic trip down memory lane. Well, there are a lot of them now. We're now in the 80s in terms of quantity of uh, podcasts, and and uh, we're rapidly approaching 90 with yours. So uh, very, very happy to have you add your story to the wall of stories that we have here going with Salt Lake 2002. But before we dive into the 2002 games, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and where you're joining us from? Sure. I am, uh, I'm with you here today from McLean, Virginia, which is in Northern Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, you know, still married to my wife, Kate. We've got three children who uh, our oldest is now 19 and at college at High Point University in North Carolina. Uh, our second boy, who is 18, is at a small school in um, New Hampshire called New England College. And if you do the math on those guys at 19 and 18, we'll get back to them in my story in, in Salt Lake. But uh, then we also have our daughter who is is 14 and in middle school uh, doing a lot of uh, remote learning right now here in, in Virginia. So, but uh, I'm working as the president for an experiential marketing company that's uh, privately owned. It's uh, been in business for 26 years now, and I've been the president for, for five of those years. So, wow. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. So let's start <laughs> out with the uh, family. So, yeah. so you've got kids spread across the country and you've got one at home. And you mentioned that your youngest was learning remotely there. So have you and your wife have to turn into like part-time teachers to help to help her through school? Or is she pretty much self-sustaining through all of this? She's, uh, she's pretty well self-sustained. Um, but my wife is also a teacher. So my wife is teaching downstairs right now. I can vaguely hear her off in the distance. And then my daughter is is doing her classes in a different room. So we're all kind of got our space within the house that we work from. But but luckily, uh, my daughter's name is Linnea. She is uh, she's a pretty good uh, self starter and, and you know is good at focusing on getting what she's got to get done. But it's it's definitely not been ideal. Well, hopefully, our little podcast here isn't adversely impacting the bandwidth of internet there in your home. Is you've got a child on Zoom doing classes remotely, and your and your wife is teaching classes remotely as well, and everybody's consuming all of this bandwidth for audio and video. So, I will try not to adversely impact their work and education. Now, let's come back to your your children that are remote or not remote, but the children that are not living at home that are outside of home and attending university. So uh, how are they dealing with all of this pandemic craziness? You know, I think they're doing pretty good, um, kind of different experiences, if you will. Adam's down in North Carolina at High Point. He's a, he's a sophomore. And, you know, for the most part, you know, they're going to classes every day. They've got some social distancing in place. 
Um, they wear the masks, they do that sort of thing. Um, and they've really been able to manage and take care of cases on campus um, and, and, you know, mitigate it, I guess, to the best of their ability. Michael being in the Northeast at New England College, they test all the time. He's probably been tested 10 times or so. Adam's never been tested. Um, so it's a different approach at each of the schools, but I think both schools in their own way have done a really good, a really good job. Michael does half and half, uh, where they're in-person classes and then remote learning from their dorm rooms so that they can limit the size in the classroom. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's been really tough on, on kids you know, of all ages, but of that age, they're, they're definitely not the normal college experience, right? There's no big group gatherings. Um, I think Adam told me he, they just started letting kids, a certain number of kids go to some of the sporting events. Um, so you start to see it come back slowly, but you know, certainly not the college experience that you aim for, for your kids. No, I totally get it. My youngest daughter is a sophomore at the university of Utah. She has one class that is in person. The rest of them are remote. And my, my sister's uh, youngest son is a sophomore at George Washington University. But because they have no in-person classes, he just stayed back here in Salt Lake City because he's like, why would I move to Washington, D.C. and stay in a dorm and take classes remotely? I might as well just be here and save the money. So yeah. I totally understand it's a crazy environment for our children who are students. Now let's turn to you. Your wife is doing this thing remotely, teaching remotely. How are you running a company remotely? Well, it's it's definitely been a challenge, especially for us in the experiential marketing space where the majority of stuff that we were doing were live events um, and that type of stuff. We, we've always had a digital component to how we enhance the live events that we do. So we were, we were able to pretty quickly work with our brand partners and, and figure out how do we continue to engage their consumers through digital engagement and, and what we call more active digital engagement. So, you know, we've, we're definitely surviving through this time. We haven't, you know, lost any of our, our partners, which is amazing. Uh, we're just not doing the volume of work out in the, in the market as you would when, when events are up and, and going, I think, you know, a big challenge for a company like Red Peg is we, we have a really strong culture with our employees um, and not having the, the face, well, we get the FaceTime, not digital, um, and being able to do a lot of our own internal cultural events has been a really big challenge. So I'm looking forward to that day where we get back into the office. Um, but I'm sure like a lot of other companies, we've, we've found ways to be more efficient. Um, I think communication's actually been better through the way we've done it on, we use Teams. Uh, so people in that way, I think communicating are, are more connected, but definitely something to be said for being in the same, the same room for brainstorms and, you know, and getting and feeding off of other people's energy. So that part's been tough. Yeah, I hear you there. It's been tough. I mean, this industry has been impacted enough and then trying to figure out how to do work differently has also been a bit of a challenge. I remember at the beginning, um, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty, but also a bit of excitement to try to do things a little differently. Now we're going on a year with this thing, and I think we're all just ready to be done with it. Like, we're, it's just, it's getting old. And 
that being said, I don't know if things will ever get back to the way they were exactly. Maybe not exactly, but they're certainly going to get better. I I feel confident about that. And my hope, you know, whether it's for how we interact um, together, I do a lot more video calls with my mom, you know, family members that normally maybe weren't as tech savvy. Uh, so I think there will be some good things that that do come out of this. And hopefully from a business perspective, too, that we've increased our digital capabilities that will continue on even when we're back to doing events. That'll help us continue to grow. So try to stay positive and look at... But I agree with you. A year going on a year into this thing, I think there's, there's a real Zoom fatigue out there, if you will. And uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that, that day where where we're back to somewhat normal, but I think there'll be some, some positives that we figure out through this. Well, and I hope that uh, soon we'll be able to go places. And for me, it would be nice to go to a warmer location. I would, <laughs> we've just got about a foot of snow here in the last little bit. And uh, it was a lot of fun out there shoveling the driveway. I don't know what the weather is like there back in, in your neck of the woods, but maybe it's headed your way. I'm looking forward to going to someplace a little bit more tropical. And that actually takes me to my next question for you, which is my marooned on an island question. So we'll we'll assume that it's not Iceland that you're marooned on, but it's a nice tropical location where you don't really have to worry too much about the temperatures. If you were marooned there for an indeterminate period of time and you only had one movie, one album, and one meal, what would those be? All right. So... Some of these popped in real quick. Others I struggled with. But uh, I'm going to go with the movie. I had a couple to choose from, but I'm going to go with Shawshank Redemption. For whatever reason, every time I see that movie on a flipping channel or something, I get locked in and I've watched it. I don't know how many times. It just sucks me in. And I think the acting's phenomenal in it. And So you're going to dig your way out of the island. <laughs> dig dig exactly. Yeah. Tunnel my, way, tunnel my way off the island. Um. The music one was tough because I think I've got, you know, a lot of different groups that I followed. It's a wide range of variety of types of music. But I think where I settled was uh, on Pearl Jam with their album 10. And then for the meal, immediately I go to Italian because I grew up upstate New York in a very Italian neighborhood. I'm not Italian. Peaster's not really an Italian name, but I grew up where a lot of my friends' parents didn't even speak English. We had the best mom and pop Italian uh, restaurants. And there's still some of my favorite food is up there in, in Endicott, New York. And uh, so I'm, you know, I first go to Italian and like a lasagna or a chicken parm. And, and, uh, and then I'm like, that's not so great on an island, but what the heck? It's, it's, it's the meal that I'm going to pick. And, uh, and then that's got to be followed up by my mom's apple pie. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I'm down with the Italian. I love lasagna and uh, chicken parm is one of my wife's favorites. So I would definitely have to consider that as well. So now that takes me to 2002. How did you get from Italian neighborhood, Endicott, New York to Salt Lake City? So gosh, it seems like a a long story, but uh, I'll try to condense it down. Um, You know, I started off um, in experiential marketing in Atlanta in 1996, 97 with a company called Momentum. 
And when I started with the company, they were actually in the midst of doing the Olympic torch relay for Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was our biggest client. Um, and you know, to date myself, I came on board and I was working on the mellow yellow sampling tour, which had nothing to do with the Olympics. Um, and I was off at, you know, the East coast beaches doing stuff with mellow yellow. And then he had the summer Olympics going on in Atlanta and I wasn't even there. Um, but the company had a relationship with Coke and, and doing a lot of their Olympic work. And then it was, I don't remember the date. It was probably like 98, maybe 99. Uh, a guy by the name of Alan Brooks came to work for Momentum. And I know you've heard Alan's name a few times on these podcasts. And uh, Alan came in and I worked with Alan on a couple of different programs. We did some stuff with the Burger King French fry release. And we had some fun on a couple of different brands. And I think Alan was only at Momentum for maybe a year. And then he moved on to some other things. And, you know, he and I kind of lost touch for maybe a year or two. And I can still remember this vividly. I was sitting in my office. I think it was a cube at the time at Momentum. And I get a phone call. And my wife and I had been talking about me making a change um, and potentially getting back up to the Northeast because we were we had started to talk about having a family and wanting to be back closer to family. And Alan calls me up and I can still remember. He's like, I'm, I'm working out here at the Salt Lake Olympics and I'm looking for... I have this position as the operations manager for ice hockey that I'd love to talk to you about. And back then I didn't have laptops. I had a big desktop computer. I remember I had a map on my wall. I remember I had to lean around to see the West coast to even know where Salt Lake was. Cause I had never even imagined moving out to the West coast. And, you know, I got to talk now and I always enjoyed the time I worked with Alan and I, I said, yeah, I'll, I'd love to come out and at least talk to you about it and, and interview. And so that's where it started. And it from there took off really quick. I think I was out there interviewing within a week or two. Um, I talked to my wife and, you know, I got, I got the call back and they were interested in hiring me. And I think I gave my two weeks notice pretty quickly. And it felt like within a month I was getting ready to move and, and head out to, to Salt Lake. And I can remember my wife thinking, you know, are we really going further West and not going to look up to the Northeast anymore? And, you know, she said, this could be a, a, an amazing adventure. And so we decided to, to take the leap and, uh, you know, thank God I, I did. Cause it was, it was the start of something truly amazing. All right. Well, that's a little bit different, though. You come from a, um, a marketing background going into more of an operational role. So what was that transition like for you? Well, so at that point in time in my career in marketing, I was really on the operations side of putting these events on. So it was a lot more of the nuts and bolts and what it took to either put a tour out on the road or, you know, and just figure out how we're going to get things done. Um but I'll admit it was definitely, you know, for me, a, a bit intimidating to, to say I was going to go out and try to figure out how to be the operations manager for ice hockey. Never played ice hockey, never skated. So once I got past the fact that, no, you're, you don't know, you know, you got to understand what the role is. And, you know, the way Alan des described not just the operations manager role, but what we did in event management and how you work on bringing all the different pieces together and how the different functions 
really, you know, come together for, for the venue team, you know, I saw that as an amazing opportunity to learn across so many different areas um, that, you know, I, I just, I couldn't pass it up. And, and luckily enough, Alan, in the, in the time that we worked together must've saw something or felt comfortable enough that, that I could, uh, I can do it. I, I go back and look at pictures and don't know what he was thinking hiring me. Cause I looked like I was 12, but you know, I, I think it worked out pretty good. Before we dive into all of the things that you did there in your role, let's talk about going west. You, you, you mentioned your wife's like, we really want to go west. And you decided, hey, this could be a really fun adventure. So what did you and her think when you got here to Salt Lake City? What was life like for you here in Salt Lake? Well, I mean, the first thing, well, for my wife, well, for me, when I went out for the interview, I went for her. It's like, you know, obviously, it's such a beautiful place, the mountains and all that kind of thing. Just kind of take your breath away when and you, you kind of pinch yourself that you know you're going to get to be there for, for those two years. Um, you know, I'd mentioned the reason why we were starting to think about moving to the Northeast is to, to have a family. And when this whole talk started to go about going to Utah, we kind of forgot about that a little bit. And we were more focused on moving and my wife can teach out there. And I can still remember we hadn't even been there a month because we were still staying at like the extended stay, wherever they put you up for like a long term while you look for your your place to to live. And my wife and I were out one weekend just visiting many places, apartments, things like that. And she she's like, your your driving is making me sick. And I'm like, I'm not driving any different than I normally do. And the next day she took a test and she was pregnant. So I haven't, you know, we hadn't even found a place to live yet. And we had literally just talked about it a little bit, uh, you know, trying to get pregnant and bam, like that. She, she was pregnant before we really felt like we'd hit the ground there. Um, so that really took on a, a different life for our time there in Salt Lake. Because not only was, was Adam born, um, you, know, when, you know, nine months after that, but uh, right on the heels of that, not, not, not planned. She got pregnant again. And so I had a son, I had pregnant, I had a son born, uh, in April of 2001. And then my second son was born after the Olympics in, uh, in June. So, I mean, we literally started our family in those two years we were there, we had two kids and that was, it was, uh, not exactly planned, but in retrospect, we wouldn't have done it any other way. Um, the, you know, the culture there in, in Salt Lake city, the care that she got, the doctors, uh, the hospitals and, and the way that they, they treated her and handled everything. Um, the friends and people that I worked with literally became family and are st- and still are today because they were there for, for those just two monumental things in our lives, which is, you know, all surrounded by the Salt Lake Olympics and what I was doing and, and that amazing experience. So you put all that together and it was, you know, really probably two of the most impactful years of my life. I think it sounds awesome. That being said, it's not easy having one very small child and another on the way while you're working very, very hard. I, 
I know for myself, my family, we had uh, four children on our on our our last one. Our fourth one was born in June of 2001. So just before the games and my wife had her hands full and I was gone all the time working. So what was that like having this newborn, another one on the way? And you've got a lot of responsibilities that take a lot of hours. How did you handle it? How did your family handle that? Yeah. And our family's all on the East Coast, right? So, um, I mean, at first, I, you know, obviously my wife's amazing. She, uh, I give her all the credit in the world. And every once in a while, she'll still remind me, yeah, you, you weren't home a lot when we were first, <laughs> you know, and that was the nature of the job and, and the business. But she's, she's been always extremely understanding um, when it comes to that. And, you know, I just think we had an incredible, even though our family wasn't there, um, felt like we had an incredible support network around that, um, just from the amazing people that we got to know either in Salt Lake or the people with, within SLOC that I worked with that, um, I mean, literally at the hospital the day Adam was born. Um, like, you know, some of the first people to hold my son were, you know, uh, Alan Brooks and, you know, Karen Wright uh, at the time, now Karen Williams and, and her husband, Andy Williams, uh, Tim Larkin and, um, you know, Brad Eggert. I mean, these, these became our extended family and they still are today, but they were like instant aunts and uncles. Um, I think, I think Adam's first babysitter might've been Brad Eggert. Um, so we just, we were very blessed and, and fortunate to have that support around us. But, you know, I give all the credit in the world to my wife because you're right. It, it was a lot of long hours. Um, and I, you know, at times that was, that was very difficult. Um, I don't know that I had as much of the social experience, um, you know, some that, that did. And I probably feel worse for my wife is, you know, we were out there for two winters and I probably skied more in those two winters than I did most of my life. And she was pregnant both winters. So she didn't ski once. (laughs) So, uh, I felt bad for her for that. totally understand my wife when she thinks back to those times it's with mixed emotions because on the one hand she was very happy for me and happy that the olympics came to salt lake city and that was a lot of fun to be a part of at the same time she was just overwhelmed with all of these little kids running around and didn't have a lot of help and and so it was it was a bit tough so i appreciate you shedding some light on that because i i think that's a that's an element of the planning of the games that often gets overlooked so Let's come back to that planning and operating the games, though. So you joined this team out at the what used to be called the E-Center. Now it's called yeah. the Public Center here where the hockey was held. Talk about coming into that team and finding your role and kind of fitting in to this new to this new team there. Yeah. So um, obviously for me, a lot to learn. I hadn't had really any Olympic experience at all. Um you know, thankfully, I think I was fortunate to to land on a team with great leaders for me to to uh, to learn from. Alan had done the Atlanta Olympics, and you know, I got to know him a little bit at Momentum. Um, you had Tim Larkin, who had Atlanta Olympic experience, uh, come onto the team, and then Karen, who uh, you know, she was like 
our wrangler, but she was really like, she'd come from the Georgia dome and she had put on some of the you know biggest events in the world with super bowl and, you know, NCAA tournaments and all that kind of stuff. So from a venue perspective, um, I had interned at a few venues, but that is nothing compared to what we were trying to do here. So I really got to be a sponge and feed off of not just their experience, but their leadership styles. Um, just observing, you know, how they interacted. Um, you know, when we moved to, to venue teams and, you know, there's so many different moving parts, um, you know, kind of getting assigned by Alan to overlook certain things as, as he got more and more comfortable with, with my role and, you know, hopefully expanding that role. Um, I, I, I always say Salt Lake for me was the shortest I've ever been at a job. It was two years. And before that was momentum at four for four years. And I learned more in those two years in Salt Lake. To me, that was my, that was my master's program. And it was because of those, you know, those folks I got to work with. Well, I want to come back to the master's program and the things that you learned in a few minutes, but before we do, why don't we talk about some of the, I don't know if the word is challenge or what, you know, what were some of the challenging things that you had to face when you came into this role and, and not just you, but the team in general uh, at that particular venue with that particular sport of ice hockey. And what were some of the things that you did to overcome those? Yeah, I mean, I think in our role at, um, you know, event management, there's there's obviously a lot of planning, but there's also, it, it felt at times like a lot of, uh, I don't know if politicking is the right word, but just managing different uh, personalities and really trying to figure out how to get the team to work the best together uh, and come together and, and, you know, communication being a huge part of that. Um, you know, and I, and I, and I, you know, it's amazing how, how that, that works. I had come from this background of, you know, more like short-term planning to an event and more planning to an event, more planning. Now this was like, a lot of planning, a lot of meetings, a lot of organizing, a lot of things for the biggest event, obviously, I'd ever done. So for me, it was a bit of an adjustment there. You didn't have the, the energy of the event every so often. Um, and it's just, you know, if, if, you, if you looked at it at any one time and didn't break it into the chunks that you needed to break it into, it could be extremely overwhelming. I think that's one of the key things that I probably learned at the Olympics is you just got to take it piece by piece, bite by bite and, and break it down. Um, because there, you know, there's endless moving parts when it comes to putting on, on an Olympics. And so I think for me that the biggest challenges was getting to understand that as fast as I could, so that I could be more effective in, in doing my job and, and helping Alan and, and Karen and, you know, taking on more and more with, with helping the other functions. That's really what our job was, right? Is how do we how do we make everyone else's job better or easier or facilitate them? It, it was really uh, probably the other biggest thing that I learned. There. I felt like have you ever heard the term servant leadership? And I think that's that's kind of the approach I think that we had to take. Is you know we were there trying to serve the venue team the best that we could uh, to make things happen. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the transition from planning to operations? Because you're right. You come in here and you're doing all this planning and you keep planning and you think to yourself, well, geez, what do you need seven years to plan this thing? It's, it's a couple of weeks, right? <laughs> but, then, but then you 
reorganize from functional areas to venue teams, and then you get deployed out to the venue and become more operational. You may do some test events. So what was that transition like for you? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I was it was exciting for me when we came together as a venue team because now it felt like it was getting a little bit more real. Uh, this was the team that you're, you know, you were going to go into action with to make it happen for the, for ice hockey. Uh, where before we were in the event management team, and that was important to understand how we all functioned um, as as the event management piece of the puzzle. But coming together as the venue team, I think the biggest challenge, and you know, probably one of the bigger roles that that we played was how do we how do we function quickly as a team? Uh, so getting to know each other. I know we did a lot of different uh, team building events. Um, you know, I, I, I think it, I, have, I have, I've heard a couple of people on your podcast say they had the greatest job, you know, ever. And, you know, some of them did sound like they had pretty good jobs, but, uh, I loved the position that I got to be in because, you know, in working with every single function, you got to know a little bit and learn a little bit about everything. So you were like the jack of all trades, but masters at nothing almost at times, but it was really, I think, uh, it helped me with, uh, how you build those relationships, how you act as mediator a lot of times in helping them to solve a problem or, or get to the bottom of something. Um, but all that, all that couldn't have come together if the team didn't gel and rely on each other and really function as a unit, because, you know, you can plan for the you can plan for everything, but something's going to pop up that you've got to react to. Um, I mean, everyone had to react to that nine eleven, right? And that that threw a big wrench into a lot of the plans, and we had to quickly uh, evolve those plans. So I remember that being one of the the larger challenges that the entire venue had to, not just ours, obviously everybody had to deal with. Um, but that, that's that's one of the things that's kept me in in the event business is I, I like the. I like that opportunity to overcome the challenges. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I have, despite several attempts, failed to escape the orbit of events. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm kind of still in it after all this time because I am really drawn to it. I, I really do enjoy those challenges and I enjoy the the newness of it, even though it might be the same kind of event, but it's in different locations with different teams and different cultures. It's quite interesting. When did you actually physically deploy to the venue? Oh, don't ask me to remember dates. Uh, yeah, exact date and time. No, too just, long ago. Too long nothing. ago. Um, I don't know, but I can always, I think we all felt like not soon enough, right? I mean, the Grizzlies were still playing. Um, and then they went on a massive road trip. So, I remember we started doing as much as we could on the exterior. Uh, I, I remember doing a lot of different, um, you know, we were in charge of venue tours early on, like even when the Grizzlies were still in control of it and they were still doing concerts and all those other events. So that was another one of the challenges, right? We had to develop the relationship with the, the existing venue and the, and the team there because, you know, this is pretty disruptive to their lives, um, but they're also the experts on their building. So, um, yeah, I don't remember the exact date of when we went in, but I remember, you know, obviously rolling in a lot of the exterior stuff and then just slowly starting to take over different parts of the inside until we had full control. Um, that, that definitely posed a lot of challenges because I know, you know, a lot of venues you could get, you, you could be there right away. 
Um, but we had to, we had to be able to get in and have the plan ready to, to kind of get things deployed uh, much quicker. So it just didn't disrupt their normal ac- activation. Yeah. I don't remember what it was like there at Maverick center, but we've had a couple of people that worked on uh, in the Delta center where the Utah jazz were playing and they had like 36 hours or something to turn that venue around. I mean, it was, it was really, really difficult. Whereas uh, in, in many Olympic games, uh, with new venues, new new construction, you don't have to worry about that. You can move in a month or two in advance and you can become acclimated to the venue. You don't have to turn it around so quickly. I couldn't remember what the turnaround time was there. I knew the Grizzlies were playing, but I, I, I can't remember exactly when or how yeah. much time you, you had to turn that thing around. I've probably blocked it out because it was, I'm sure it was a, a stressful point in time, right? Because like I said, we didn't, we didn't have it as early as we'd wanted. I, I can still remember Alan negotiating the contract. I know that was one of the points is you know, how, how quickly we could get access to certain areas and start to, to turn things over. So yeah, that was definitely one of the challenges for us. Well, you do turn it around, you get into the venue, training starts, competitions begin. What's life like for you, John, during games time? Well, as you know, our venue was one of the busier ones during the, I mean, we had competition every single day, sometimes three sessions a day. So it was, it, it was a up at before dawn, I think. I don't remember seeing a lot of daylight <laughs> during those two weeks. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, I vividly remember the, um, you know, we have two rounds in the Olympics, right? You have a playing round where you don't have, uh, all the countries there yet. You've already had teams like the USA and Canada and Russia. They've already made it to the second round, if you will, through international play. But you also don't have the NHL players released yet from the schedule. So I can remember these countries playing that first week. And then the countries that advanced to the second round had a lot of their rosters turn over because a lot of the NHL players just came in and took their spots, which felt a little wrong to me. But you also saw, let's just say the, the, the people walking through the hallways, the athletes got bigger, <laughs> the speed on the, the ice got faster, like just a totally different level of play came in when the NHL released their, their players to us. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I, I, don't, I don't equate it to the movie Groundhog Day because there were such different challenges every day to deal with and, and you know, just uh, a different energy almost to the building every day that it felt to me like it took on depending on who was playing. But, uh, I thought it was one of the most exciting places to be. So I was glad I got to be there all the time. Well, it was a super exciting place to be. And the competitions were great, particularly the, the finals matches, right? The, the gold medal matches, both men's and women's. Yeah. I mean, the men's and women's coming down to USA, Canada, you probably couldn't have scripted that any better. Um, I've never, I still, I don't think ever been, and I've been to a lot of events, um, to one that had that type of energy. I don't know if you can compare it when you, when it comes to, uh, when you're rooting for your country like that, uh, and then Canadians had just as, you know, it felt like as much energy in the building as well at times. Um, those games, the men's and women's finals definitely stand out to me, um, along with the USA, Russia men's game.
they were fantastic all the way up to the very last day of, of the games, but it doesn't end there because you had Paralympic games afterwards. Yeah. And that's, uh, another quick turn. Um, you know, and, and thank, thankfully, you know, we had Karen, uh, Karen Williams now kind of running that show and Karen's one of the most organized and button up people that, that I know. So for us, uh, I never, I never had any work. She was on top of it from the get go. Um, so I, it felt like a very smooth transition. Um, and for me, it was, it was great because the energy is different, but the energy is still unbelievably fantastic. And those athletes are phenomenal. Um, and getting to understand sledge hockey and, and how that sport works, uh, for me was a, was a great, great, great experience as well. Almost felt like you got to breathe a little bit um, and enjoy the competition because there wasn't the demand as much, I guess, from the outside on the on the venue as you felt during the the Olympics. But the energy was still amazing from the fans, which was you know I'll, I'll never forget that too. The, the Paralympics to me are are still very vivid in my mind, just as much as the Olympics were. Well, it sounds to me like you've had a lot of fascinating moments, and in a moment, I'm going to ask you to kind of choose one or you know. Think of one, but could be more as a goosebump moment. But before we get to goosebump moments, I know you've given some thought. You've listened to other podcasts. Is there anything on your list of stories in your memory banks that we haven't gotten to yet that you want to share? It's so probably one of the one of the more. What didn't feel funny at the time, but it was funny in retrospect. Um, for me, at the venue was um, it was one evening where I got a call on the radio. And there was an issue out in our parking lot with uh our transportation some someone said that they had sent somebody who had a you know vip pass away and the people in the car were this um this guy haven rivera who was the head of all olympics for coca-cola and he was with his special guest who was mike aruzioni now, Mike, lit, he literally lit with the 80 team, the cauldron. And so what I'm hearing on the radio is the guy from Coke is very upset, and I needed to go up to the suite to talk to him. Um, and so I was like, oh, no. right? How do, how do we turn away the guy that lit the cauldron and the head of Coke? Um, but fortunately, I went up and I knocked on the door of the suite, and the, the guy that opened the door was someone that I had worked with at Momentum. And was there with Coke and was able to introduce me and everything was kind of cool and smoothed over and they, we got him in the building. Okay. But I can remember getting that call on the radio thinking, Oh, geez, <laughs> you know, Mike is the only, the guy that if you're in the Olympic venue at, at ice hockey. Anyway, you got to kind of know who Mike Ruzioni is. Yeah, that is. Well, it's funny in retrospect, I'm sure it wasn't totally funny at the moment, you know, there are certain people like that, that you don't even think they need credentials to get in. Right. You just think, okay. We know who you are. You can come on <laughs> here, but we understand security has oh yeah procedures and things like that that need to be adhered to, and so that's why you have venue management on hand to resolve some of these issues. Yep, definitely. No, and that that was definitely uh, something that I know that uh, weighed on Alan a lot. I mean, we were very we had to be we had to be very critical of who came in and out of that venue. Cause there, there was a high demand. We were limited capacity. It wasn't an open menu, obviously. So especially on those big nights where everybody wanted to be there, um, there was a lot of stress on 
evaluating and coming up with, you know, who should be there and who's just trying to figure out a way why they should be there. Yeah. But the torch guy, you know, the hockey <laughs> dude, nah, he's, he's not, he's not important enough. Yeah, maybe he should be allowed in. <laughs> yeah. We can make an exception for him. That's an awesome story. Any others before we get to your goosebump moment? Um, maybe one more that sticks out in my mind. We're at a meeting at the infamous globe. I'm sitting there with Karen and Alan and Tim and probably Brad. And, um, I get the, I get a call on my phone from my wife. And this was the, this was the second pregnancy where she said, you're not going to believe this, but I'm pregnant again. And according to those guys, when I hung up the phone, I was pretty white. <laughs> and that was the end of the meeting. <laughs> like I I was done. I wasn't going to focus on, you know, we were, we were off of whatever we were going to try to figure out that morning uh, for the Olympics. And we were, we were moving on to how the heck am I going to have a second kid? <laughs> so that one stands out very vividly in my mind. Yeah, I can imagine you're in a meeting and you're going over the issues register. That one pops up and right to the top of your personal <laughs> issues register. Is like, My wife is pregnant again. That's awesome. Okay, let's get to your goosebump moment. As you survey the landscape of memories from Salt Lake 2002, what stands out as the moment that really gives you all that emotional feeling? Um, you know, probably the one for me was... It was the night of the USA Russia game. And you know, it was the kind of the first time since the eighty the eighty Olympic in Lake Placid where the US was was taking on Russia on on the in the Olympics anyway, on our our home soil. So a lot of energy in the arena that night. Uh like I said, a lot of pressure on the venue. But I remember being able to sneak away for probably just five to ten minutes to watch the puck drop from above the ice in the catwalk and having that perspective of watching the USA Russia game start um, from, from way up high like that and thinking about the history of, of that with the team and you know, just had how the Olympics for Salt Lake had started with the eighties team being there to light the cauldron. Um, that one for me was goosebumps on top of goosebumps. Um, and knowing that I was just a small, small part of, of making it happen. Definitely a goosebump moment. And I appreciate you sharing that. The wonderful thing about the games, it's, it's the whole world comes together. The hard thing about the games, then the whole world leaves. <laughs> Everybody leaves and the games are over. So here you are with a growing family. What was next? What was in store for you and your family after the Salt Lake 2002 games come to a close? Give us a little sense of the journey that you took post Salt Lake, and then we can wrap up on some of the things that you learned along the way in your master's degree program here in Salt Lake, guiding principles that can be potentially helpful to others. Sure. Yeah. So for me, it was, you know, that abrupt end after the Paralympics and you don't have any work to do, but also for me, there was going to be this period of time where we wanted to have our second son in Salt Lake. My wife was still pregnant after the games. And so we were there. My son was born June 25th. So I had a few months 
I had nothing to do. And going from 100 miles an hour to zero was a challenge. And I drove my wife nuts. She's like, you've got to do something. So I remember Tim Larkin and I were playing golf like crazy. Like <laughs> I've never played that much golf in my life. I still haven't played that much golf. I wasn't very good at it. But uh, that's what we did to preoccupy our time on top of looking for a job. Um, and I fell in back into the experiential agency side of things. Um, you know, I didn't really entertain, uh, I guess Greece was the next one. I knew Alan was going to go and, and work it in, in Greece. I just felt like maybe too big of an adventure for my wife and I to, to bite off with two babies. So, uh, I was fortunate that I found, um, a spot with a company called ignition. Ignition was an experiential marketing company born out of momentum. And they actually took on a lot of the, all the Olympic work for Coca-Cola and they were based in Vermont, which is the Northeast, right? Kind of where we wanted to be. So yeah, after Salt Lake, um, two weeks to the day after my son was born, my father and I drove cross country and, uh, big box truck with everything that we owned. And my wife and her mom flew with the two babies. And, uh, we spent 10 years in Vermont and then ended actually back in Atlanta with the same company, uh, for, for another four years before I came here to, to the DC area. And then, and, you know, and funny enough, the, uh, you know, the four years when we were back in Atlanta, we were practically neighbors with the Williams. We ended up moving into just about the same neighborhood. Um, and just all of a sudden had, you know, all those close connections from Salt Lake, uh, right, right there next door to us. So that was, that was fantastic. And, you know, those guys are still such a huge part of, of our family. We get together every year. I think you've heard of the hockey Palooza crew, uh, which, you know, talks to all those people I talked about, plus Colleen Mullen and Amy Murray and, you know, Brad and Millie, his wife. So, uh, they said, those have been, those are such um, an amazing two years that have really shaped my lifelong friends and family. Um, you know, that I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause we've, we've talked to Amy, we've talked to Andy and Karen already in the podcast, several people from that Salt Lake or from that, um, the old E center, the Maverick center. And it's really, really awesome how you've been able to maintain these relationships after so many years. Okay, what are some of those underpinning guiding principles, pieces of advice that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, it's a couple I would say is especially early on in, in your career, I, you know, going back to my wife's advice where let's just go and make this an adventure. I would say don't 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 ever say no to an adventure. You never know what's going to what's going to come of it, what the result is going to be. Um you know, I wouldn't, I would not, you know, when I, when I, when I think back specifically to the relationships that I made and, and what I learned from, from saying yes to Salt Lake, um, my life would be completely different. I mean, Alan is, is really like a brother to me now. He's, uh, he's, he's, he's always been my mentor, but he's really like my brother to me now. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine not having that in my life. So I would say definitely don't, don't hesitate. Say yes to the adventure. Um, I, I mentioned it before, but I think for me, servant leadership is a big lesson. 
um, that I got to learn and that I tried to carry through is, you know, I'm, I'm running a company now and, and just how my approach is to that is, you know, learn, learn from the, the great managers that you have in life and take all those good things that you learn from them and try to try to replicate it, but, you know, um, pass it on to others. So, so yeah, I'd say those, those two things, um, are really things that have helped shape me in my career. All right. Well, this has been a fascinating hour for me, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to share all of these stories with us. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing with Redpig, how that might be able to, I don't know, help them in some way, or if they just want to swap stories about Salt Lake or other things that you've worked on, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm on Facebook, not real active on Facebook, but you can find me there. I'm on LinkedIn. I, I check that a little bit more often. Um, you know, Red Peg is the name of the company. It's just redpeg.com is our website. And my email address is just J, my first initial, Peaster, P-I-E-S-T-E-R, at redpeg.com. All right, John. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. John, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been fantastic. 